another episode coming up of space and 60 we've got one of the guests i've been looking forward to the most today uh richard osborne of astro agency you guys know him right oh yeah i know uh, i think we all know him for what space bar and before space bar i mean astro agency puts on a a great panel discussion named space bar if you haven't been on that you've got to attend sometime yeah sign up for it check it out check out the topics it's always a it's a great forum yes and the energy richard brings to space and talking and his enthusiasm i mean it's amazing yeah if everyone has or had the type of energy that richard brings to the space industry i i think that the amount of money thrown at this industry would would be 3x of what it is today we'd be on mars by far like i mean we we'd we'd be good yeah we'd definitely be on mars but i don't know if there'd be an earth left like there's so much energy there earth might explode (laughs) yeah if there were an ambassador for the new space industry someone that could just travel the world and bring the enthusiasm for investing your time your energy and your money into the space industry i would pick richard and that's one of the reasons i'm so looking forward to our time with him today Richard, awesome to see you again. Good afternoon or good morning as it is for you. Lots of different time zones. We have Andrew, we have Chad, we got the whole crew here today. How's everyone doing? It's a Monday, what can you say? <laughs> I don't see a big cup of coffee in your hand there, Andrew, though. If there wasn't some drips, you know, I'd tip it over, but you know, I'd make a mess on my desk. <laughs> but it's empty, that's the point. Richard, are you a coffee guy? Yeah, I've I've got my large mug of coffee in front of me here with a rocket company logo on it in fact so uh yeah normally drink about seven or eight cups of coffee a day in fact far too much <laughs> so you go to the moon and back on on a daily basis <laughs> oh absolutely from when i get up until uh uh far too late at night um uh, yes i I can't get by without coffee. The other thing is green tea. I drink gallons of green tea as well. It's sort of the antidote to drinking seven or eight cups of coffee, I guess. <laughs> oh, it's a balance. Yeah, absolutely. I've tried switching over to it, but the coffee just keeps pulling me right back in. Yeah, well, well, the, the way to do it is, is normally uh, just have a mug of each and then, then it sort of counteracts the other. So how do you like your coffee? Do you like your coffee engineering style that's like rocket fuel, or do you drink the 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 coffee that's watered down? When I'm out, I'm kind of a bit of a snob with my coffee, but in the house, I guess realistically, I'll, I'll just take anything as long as it's got caffeine beans in it or coffee beans in it. I, I don't mind. When I was with a company called Rapid Eye, I used to go to the engineering room to drink the engineering coffee. I don't know if if you remember that Andrew the coffee that those guys had in the hallway but it was it was so strong you could stand your spoon in it. I think he really went to engineering for the hand lotion. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> I think you better explain that one Andrew before yeah. <laughs> before that goes in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, the engineers I mean from clicking on the keyboard so much would get dry hands and so they always had some moisturizer in 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 engineering but um they used it in, in a number of ways to, to make people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so every day at 11 a.m., I think, was moisturizing time. So yep. in synchronous, all of the engineers in the engineering room would break out the hand moisturizer and start to moisturize 11 o'clock. It was a little bit creepy. It's starting to explain a lot here between you two. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, these are the things that bond, right? Right. Enough about coffee. Enough about coffee. We've got Richard on today, Richard Osborne, an incredible guest I've been looking forward to for a long time. Richard, I think you know all of our background, mine and Andrew's and Chad's, but um, for those that are regular listening, regular listeners to Space and 60, I think we have tens and tens of listeners. Maybe you could 
explain to them what your background is in the space industry. Oh my goodness, where, where do I start? To, to start with, I'm a lot older than I look. It's just my hair, <laughs> my hair hasn't turned grey yet. I've been interested in space realistically since the late 60s when I first saw the Apollo moon landing in, in 1969. I was only very small at the time, but I still have that vague memory of the first moon landing. And because of that, that set me on the, the path to do in something involving space ever after. Even when I was about six, I got into trouble at school for emulating what I thought was astronauts and how you need to fly in, in space and, and so on. The teachers used to say to my parents, he's mad, he's mad. He just <laughs> wants to go to space. As I got older into, into more senior school, it, it was the same. They, they used to say, well, why don't you get involved? Um, think about doing something practical. No, want to be an astronaut. And everything was was tailored around that and all my study. And the, the reason I did maths, physics and chemistry was because I wanted to basically be an astronaut. Back then, I was a lot fitter and used to do climbing and the martial arts. So, you know, I, I didn't look as large as, as perhaps I am now. And it was all going perfectly according to plan. Then I found women and <laughs> got, got, got sidetracked somewhat. But I carried on. I, I uh, followed uh, physics degrees. That was my background, doing starting with physics, then uh, remote sensing and planetary physics, and then moving on to do solar astrophysics for a PhD, which I never completed, thanks to girls again. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this thing is... is trailing down the wrong path to women. Let's, well, let's lube it back. <laughs> no, 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 not necessarily, because you see, the, the, the thing is, what the reason I was doing all that was the wrong reason to start with, was because at school, years before, I had still remembered that the maths department at school had said uh, to my parents, he'll never succeed. He's not good enough. And I've still got a report somewhere that says uh, Richard should stop this silly notion of being an astronaut and should think about a job in an office or a factory. It kind of had the, uh, the opposite effect on me. It spurred me on. It was right. Well, I'm going to show you. So all the way through to going to do a PhD, it was a case of right I'm going to show you. So the end result was the school's negative approach worked to spur me on. So it was a fantastic way of, of, of getting a good result out of um, what could have been a very negative sort of uh, way of thinking. But all the time I was doing this, I did still harbour this desire uh, to go into space. But by the mid-20s, I'd, I'd realised... This probably isn't as practical as I thought it was, but all that time I'd been building rockets. I'd been building rockets as a kid. I set my bedroom on fire uh, more than once. <laughs> I set the garage on fire. It basically, uh, eventually I migrated to a field nearby because it was the only thing left that I couldn't really set on fire. And that then continued into, into university as well. Um, I was building rockets at university. In fact, I wanted to build one for my final year project. And the head of department at the time said, oh, he's not building a rocket because the rest of the department will probably uh, persuade him to, to do something crazy with it. So I got vetoed and ended up doing quantum mechanics instead for my my final year thesis, which was which was a lot harder mathematically and not as much fun as launching a rocket, perhaps. It carried on in that vein. My love of space was the reason I went off to do the master's degree in remote sensing. And, and I converted that in the direction of planetary physics, getting to work on data from the Phobos to Mars mission, which had uh, been launched in 1988 by what was the Soviet Union then. 
And a couple of the researchers on that had come across to the university where I was studying. They gave a talk on it. At the end, they said, are there any questions? And maybe me, I put my hand up and said, yeah, have you got any data I can work on? And because they didn't know me, they said, well, why don't you come out? To which my uh, university department's approach was, yes, we'll pay for him. Go. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I, yeah, so I, I wound up going out there. Oh, I think it was, oh, gosh, it was probably early 1992. So it was a very interesting time to be out there. And I, I got to see various space hardware in um in Moscow, and then did some work in St. Petersburg with, with these people. But all it did was just spur me on to, to do more and more to do with space. But the problem was back then in the UK, there wasn't actually that much you could do in space. I joined um, the British Interplanetary Society back in the, in the 1980s. I was aware of all the things that were going on, but it was all uh, tending to go on back then, either out in the US or in Russia or, or the Soviet Union, as it then was. So it was very difficult to get any kind of traction in the in the space industry. I got involved early on in some remote sensing back in the early 90s, working at University College London. And ostensibly, that was going to be looking at the surface of Mars from space because I'd already been uh, doing the Mars research, but it, it wound up be, uh, being mainly looking at agriculture and, and crops, which wasn't necessarily something at the time that I, I was so into. I, you know, nowadays I realise the importance, but back then it was, oh, I want to do Mars or I want to do something to do with the moon, but less so with the Earth. However, after a year or so, I then got to work on a, it was, I think it, uh, the name of the mission was Euromir 95, and it was a payload to the Mir space station. And it was going to, uh, what I was working on was I was involved with a, a project uh, which had a centrifuge, which spun biological uh, samples, uh, and it was going to be carried up in a Soyuz and it would be part of a, a joint European-Russian mission. And unfortunately, that got canned. At this point, I thought, well, I'm not doing too well here. I was going to work previously when I was at the remote sensing job on a, a Mars Observer, hopefully, or data from Mars Observer, uh, and that blew up when it got to Mars orbit. And then with this mission being canned that I was working on, I thought, okay, Right. OK, maybe I'm being a bit jinxed here. And at the time, the web was just starting up, the World Wide Web. There weren't that many sites out in the in the early. It was back in about 94. This was it was relatively immature. And I thought, oh, this could be interesting. This could turn into something. But obviously, nobody had any idea it was going to be as big as it became. Um, so I went into the IT world. But I went into the IT world with the thinking that the money I'd make from working IT, I could save and put towards starting an asteroid mining company or a launch company. The thing about working in the space industry, if you're truly an enthusiast and almost like a, an addiction to working in the space industry, you constantly try to find ways to support your habit of of your space enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. And this was all the time. It, it was, how can I do something in space? How can I do something in space? And I'd started to get involved with amateurs stroke of experimental rocketry as well, with a couple of initiatives that were looking at building a few space shots using hybrid rockets. And this was back in the early, the, the early 90s through into the mid-90s. Is that getting back to lighting fires again? Fires in garages and fires in... Uh... <laughs> Absolutely. Any excuse. That was, go that was going rather well on the side. So I was essentially funding 
my rocketry interest through the IT work. And it, it ended up in some fairly large rocket projects, and I got roped on to some other interesting rocket projects. There, there were some things for, for Top Gear, for instance, and a few uh, TV stints that were possibly a little bit ill-advised. Oh, now once you say that, we got to dig in a bit more. <laughs> the Top Gear story, that is. Oh, the Top Gear <laughs> one. Oh, the Top Gear one was um, launching a three-wheeled car. Uh, from top gear yeah the top gear the top gear the top gear all right we're gonna have to find out which episode oh oh my goodness yeah yeah there's there's probably um there's probably youtube links to it oh yeah i'm gonna have to watch it so what was what were you doing on on that one on that episode there was a team of us the rocket and the reliant robin had been converted into a space shuttle and the idea was to launch it, to launch a car, basically. And uh, it got built up in Manchester in northern England. And I was based down in, in, in London, but I was involved mainly in, in the support. And then when the thing actually launched, being around and making sure everything worked. Yeah, I mean, it was a very, very interesting stunt. I think pretty much everyone thought it couldn't work. So you guys beat Elon to it when he launched his Tesla. I mean, you guys were the the, the original first. launch of a vehicle. <laughs> yeah, essentially, this would have been back in 2006. It worked in a, in a fashion. It, it went up. I can't remember now how high it went. Probably, probably no more than a few thousand feet. But there was a problem with the release mechanism. And at launch... There was this enormous fireball when when all the motors lit. It seems that a cable got severed. The communications between the car and and the main stack didn't really work properly. There was a backup, but that didn't work either. So uh, I, I think the key there is always have at least three or four backups, not just one backup. So the end result was that the the entire stack, bar the two solid boosters, which had separated on the ascent, the rest of the stack just arced over in a parabola and and, and came down and um, hit the ground with a, a little bit of force, a little bit, little bit of flame. <laughs> but this is Reliant Robin Space Shuttle Challenge, right? That's yeah. that's the yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So season nine, episode two. And it has an IMDb rating of 8.0, so good on you. Oh, yes. Okay. I know what I'm looking for today. Oh, so it's it's actually, oh, you found it. Oh, yeah, you bet I found <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys can't see Andrew uh, on the podcast, but he was over there typing away, pecking away at the keyboard, frantically looking for this. Yeah, look, this at, look at this up. Look at this up. I have to find it. <laughs> So Richard, do you have your own IMDb profile? Are you a certified star? What's the... If I am, I don't know about it. Well, I've got We're going to find out soon from Andrew. I, I can see those eyes moving. <laughs> <laughs> scrolling, scrolling frantically here. Um, incidentally, Hugh Grant was on this one. I guess he was the celebrity guest. Oh, really? Oh, they yeah. didn't let you know. Oh, I can't you? remember. I can't, I can't remember. It was... <laughs> Yeah, it's a little while ago, 2007. So I, I'll give you that. I don't, I don't even remember where I was in 2007. Yeah, that would be right because it was done in the summer of 2006. Even getting to that point was was interesting. We we were staying in tents on on the top <laughs> of the morning, <laughs> and some uh, and it was on arm uh, a large army test range, and the, this guy in the army came past at one point. And he said, you're brave. And I said, why? And he said, I wouldn't sleep there. There's, there's nests of vipers up there. Said, oh, no, what have we done? And then there was a herd of cows one day that walked straight through all the tents. Miraculously, they, they didn't trample the tents. I was very impressed. And interestingly, we, we had a problem with a cow uh, just before the launch because we trailed up a cable. It was probably about three quarters of a mile long, This the launch cable from the launch point all the way back to the bunker where we were launching the shuttle from. And 
we'd retreated back up the hill, one of the TV crew came along and said, you know, that cable, uh, is it is it important? <laughs> and said, well, yeah, that's the launch cable. Why? Oh, well, a cow just walked off and got a bit tangled in it. And, and oh, so <laughs> we had to go running down and retrieve this cable and and, and replumb everything um, to make sure it, it, it launched on time. Too bad you didn't have Andrew there. Andrew's from the, the Calgary area. Plenty of cattle there. He's a regular cattle there. But I was going to say, I think cattle are becoming our arch nemeses uh, of this show from uh, our first episode. Our that second is episode. true. It all comes back. All comes Morba. back to the cow. Yeah. The thing about doing things like this is that even though it's on, on a very small scale, obviously compared to a large launch vehicle, but it gives you the opportunity to learn to adapt very, very rapidly and to fix problems. I was part of a team where we, we, we did a boosted dart launch in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada, and this would be back in oh, 2000. Is that a boosted what kind of launch? A boosted dart. Okay, dart, yeah. Basically, we, we wanted to get the maximum bang for the buck. And, and we figured that the easiest way to do this was look at the old Super Loki dart that the US had, had developed back in the 1950s and 60s and do something similar. So we bought or remotely bought uh, the most incredibly mad solid rocket motor that we could buy at the time from. Um, a wonderful Californian company called Cosden. And we put this, this motor, this 10,000 Newton's thrust motor uh, for about two and a half seconds. So it's a very high thrust for a very short space of time. And that's what you want with a boosted dart. You want the maximum momentum to be transferred into this very small dart. So we went out to the desert and all the Americans said we were mad. And they said, you're going to be recovering that with a shovel. You do know this. Uh, so we were determined to get it back just to prove we could do it. When we turned up in the middle of the desert, the company that or the, or the guy who, who made the rocket motor turned up in the middle of the desert to meet us. And we'd designed the entire housing around... Um, this great big coupler on the top of the rocket motor with four great big holes uh, to put these big thick bolts into. And he turned up with this motor with the mating system to attach to this. And it had three holes. So we had holes at 90 degrees and he had three holes at uh, 120 degrees. And that's an incredibly interesting challenge. If you're in the middle of the desert <laughs> and you've got very, very little, how do you manage to drill something out? And because of the fact that we had other people doing launches at the same uh, event, we were able to beg people to lend us enough bits and pieces and cobble enough pieces together to be able to drill and get something to hold together. And again, in fairness, the Americans at the event, they, they said, it's not going to hold together. You know, you can't do something like this in the field and expect it to work. It, it's... And Richard said, one second, hold my beer. Hold my beer. No. <laughs> I, I thought this was going to be a metric imperial story, but no, this is much better. No, this is much simpler. It's just three holes versus four. <laughs> it gets back to the old American hammer or screw. I mean, That's, just there you go. Have Chad, Chad's, force it, force it Chad's, to work. Uh, motto right there. <laughs> But I was the other thing I was thinking of here is this is the perfect duct tape story. Yes. But yeah, again, duct tape, there's a classic example. There's rockets uh, on the smaller scale I've launched to pretty high speed. And at the last minute, something's happened with the camera housing and you end up duct taping it on the side. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and, and it holds, it works. <laughs> I, I can't speak highly enough of duct tape. It, it, it holds on at high speed. I don't know whether it would work at, at hypersonic speed, so I suspect not, but but it certainly works at subsonic speeds. Challenge accepted. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, I hear another test. 
One of our favorite scenes from one of our favorite space series, Richard, is um, on For All Mankind. It's on Apple TV. They they built their lunar outfits, their suits out of duct tape. Did you see that one? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that one. I've seen them. Uh, I saw the one with the sea dragon. I remember that. Oh, my God. I want to build a sea dragon. That's just wonderful. <laughs> oh, the, the sooner we move to building rockets of that size, the better. Indeed. Yeah, so you're like you have quite a background, quite a diverse background in the space industry. What are you What are you doing these days? Well, I kind of came to this. Uh, I'm currently working for a company called Astro Agency, which is space strategic marketing of all things. Which may seem a bit odd for someone with a launch background, but it's not. It's because the the beauty is because I've got a love of the whole of the, the space industry, not not just uh, launch. Because of this love of space in general, my colleague uh, at Astro Agency, uh, a wonderful guy called Daniel Smith, he suggested to me, he said, look, you've got an opportunity here, not just to help one company in the space industry, but help lots and float everything higher. That really appealed to me, the, the thought of, wow, let's make the pie much, much larger. Let's help a lot more people. The other reasoning was because I'd, I'd been in the pub with him and been uh, complaining about the fact that so many companies in the space industry tend not to be very, very good at publicising what they're doing. I said, basically, the problem is, Many space companies can't market their way out of a paper bag. And we need to do something about that. And he said, he said, well, does the we mean you? The option is there. The, the, why don't you help? And I couldn't, I really couldn't say no. I, I'd had, at that point, you know, the, the gauntlet had been laid down and I had to do something. And it, it's been a revelation. It's been absolutely fantastic. I absolutely love it. It's living the dream because you're doing different aspects of space continually. A lot has, has sort of come to light about the whole downstream and the whole vastness of the scale of what is, is achievable out there, not just for space reasons, but for humanity, just how much we can, we can do. You get to work with launch companies, with companies that are building spacecraft, space domain awareness, like what are the most exciting things that you see going on out there today since you get to see an entire breadth of what's happening? Oh my goodness. How do you start? Because to me, the whole space world is like Disney. It's just wonderful. I would in previous iterations of myself have just been focused on launch alone. But what I find very, very exciting is where we're going next and the move back to the moon and the move to Mars, where I think we really need to be thinking far, far more now. And I I notice there are companies now stepping up to the plate. We have the small lander companies who are working in collaboration with NASA on uh, the Artemis project. And, And obviously you've got the SLS itself, and then SpaceX's enormous starship. But I think that's all going to open up the solar system. And we need to think about opportunities from a business perspective, because there's going to be so much to do. And people overlook the basics. They think about, oh, yes, you know, we're going to be sending this, these missions, but what about the support for the missions? What about the support for when you've got when you've got people back on the moon and you want to keep them there sustainably, you need to develop a pipeline, a sustainable way of transporting all the equipment, uh, all the food, all the supplies out to the moon and hopefully out to Mars as well. That's a revelation in itself. You know, there's the old saying that when there's a gold rush, sell shovels. I think that's that you're right, that that's something that's that's overlooked. And there's been a ton of money from a venture capital standpoint going into 
the new space economy and building up all of these capabilities. But sooner or later, someone in all of these different vertical parts of the business, they they have to start making money rather than just building up capabilities because, you know, organizations like NASA um, or UK Space Agency, they can afford to invest for the purpose of learning and developing technology. But at some point on the new space side, you have to make money with these things and maybe logistics and maybe supply and, and those things are, are where it begins to happen. 3D printers. Yeah, 3D printers, absolutely. Well, you look at the work that's been done with space manufacturing, that's got to be one of the other new areas. Everyone seems to be piling in on, on new launch companies or small sat launch companies. And I kind of understand it because uh, launch is, uh, you know, it's shiny, it's great, it's exciting. Burns things down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I was, I, was, I was doing it for decades and, and it's great. But there seems to be a lack of due diligence out there from the investment community, because why do we need yet another small sat launch company that the ones who are actually building hardware now and uh, static testing sort of flight capable rockets they're likely to succeed but beyond that there's a couple of hundred companies claiming to be developing uh, small sat launches there's no market for that the market will be saturated at a much lower level than that. So why are these people even jumping in? And I think it's it, it's just excitement for rockets just because they, they think, oh, this looks exciting. But the reality is, I think investors who get into things at that level, they're going to get burnt because the, the investment is in the, the top 20 or so of the small sat launches now. And if people aren't launching or, or they don't have appreciable hardware, it's going to be very, very difficult to make a profit on it. We see it in the UK. There's something like 25, 26 companies claiming to be developing small sat orbital launchers. Now, the reality is most of these are PowerPoint slides. The ones who are likely to succeed are those who, who've got large, serious hardware. In, in the UK, there, there's essentially two companies on the vertical side who are likely to succeed, which are Orbex and Skyrora. And for full disclosure, I used to work for Skyrora. But I think with vertical launch, they'll succeed. And, and potentially some of the, the American companies that are talking about launching from the UK, like ABL. And then horizontally, it's it's possible that there's a market for maybe a couple there, uh, Virgin being one and Astraeus being another. You know, Andrew and Chad, this would be a really great opportunity if we could have some of the old live call-in lines like the old radio shows, because I think we would get a tremendous amount of, uh, <laughs> yeah. of debate yeah. on, on Our switchboards are lighting up. <laughs> bring it on, bring it on, because the thing is, <laughs> very few people seem to have run the numbers properly. They've not sat down, they've not looked at what the addressable market is. It's one thing to say, look, there's a total market size, but then look at the, the actual total addressable market. And there is a difference. With that, there's neither agreeing or disagreeing with you at this point, Richard. What I see as a tremendous benefit, though, is that all of this pressure from the small sack companies that are beginning, whether they're at PowerPoint or static test. I think all of that is putting pressure on the top 20 to lower prices and innovate and make it much more affordable to space for the rest of the industry. Oh, very much so. It's just for anyone coming in at this point, unless you've got something like an anti-gravity system or something pretty esoteric, it will be very, very hard to compete. There's about 10, 12 companies in the US who are really, really doing very well and, and likely to succeed. And then there's several in, in Europe and the UK who are likely to succeed. But beyond that, if you're new or if you, ha if you haven't got beyond the, the PowerPoint stage, how do you compete? Have you seen the, uh, the company, Richard? I'd love to know from your background, your thoughts on novel ideas like, I think the company is Spin Launch. They've got a ah. really novel concept of, of launch. 
Yeah, very interesting. And I hold my hands up. And and when Spin Launch first came out, I thought, no, no way. How can that work? But it was it was my own stupidity. I hadn't done the maths. And it all comes down to doing the numbers. If you sit down and you actually do the numbers for these things, it gives you a good insight into whether something is physically possible. And also then to look at the market itself. Obviously, that's what I do on a daily basis anyway, is a lot of market analysis. But I'm just amazed how many companies out there, they go into their various space markets and they don't actually look at who, who are the competitors, what's the size of the market, what potential chance do I have in that market? And we need more of that. We need people to do that, to do their basic due diligence. I think there's a lot coming up in launch too, because I, I agree there's a lot out there, but then especially kind of growing it because you start launching small and then you get larger and larger. I mean, look at SpaceX, right? And thinking about in the future, kind of all the commercial space stations that they want to launch. So they're going to have to have these launch vehicles to launch the components of that and be able to get into orbit and do some different pieces. So may may help the innovation for some of these smaller companies to get into that as well. I think the key is uh, you, you've just hit the nail on the head. It's innovation. If you want to enter the small sat market now and you're not building appreciable hardware, you need to be innovative. You need to be clever. You need to think of an approach that others haven't done. And the other area that I've certainly advised a few, a few people in, in the small sat launch area to look at is pivot to in-space services. If you want to do propulsion, start looking at tugs, start looking at upper stages. And it's interesting that some of the small sat launcher companies are doing that themselves because they realize the value because that market is opening up and it's going to get vastly larger. And especially when you've got spacecraft the size of the SpaceX Starship or Blue Origin's New Glenn, they're going to have cavernous payload capabilities. If you've got a small satellite and you want to go to a specific orbit, if you're going on rideshare, it's possible that you may not be able to get to the specific orbit you want or not to an ideal position. But that's where these space tugs come in. And this is why the companies who've developed the space tugs have realized that there's real potential value there. So I think that that's somewhere a company that perhaps hasn't gained the traction it would like in small sat launch could look at moving into because that could be a very large space. Uber orbits or what, orbit stash, <laughs> orbit stash. There we go. Well, yeah, absolutely. I'm building a, a pirate space station or something similar. Oh, that sounds exciting. Well, it, it was a point I, I remember saying back in the 1990s when Mia was starting, they were talking about what are we going to do when it get, comes to the end of its lifetime. And I thought back then that if someone could get up there and just get on board and squat on board, what are the authorities going to do? Are they going to send <laughs> something? Water rights in space? Yeah, exactly. Are they going to send something up to come yeah, and get? Yeah, up? there you go. Is it? Is that Tom Cruise? Is he going to be the next squatter up there? Isn't he launching up there? Well, the thing is, that the, the point is that when you're up there, what can people realistically do? This is why I, I often get into um, contention with people in in the space law side of things. They really can't do much other than not send you more air, water, and food. No, exactly. And if you can generate, <laughs> if you can generate, your generate yourself. Yeah, yeah. This is the future of ISS right here. I want a retirement asteroid, and I've, I've already <laughs> um, gone away in the background. And before SpaceX had their Starship, I designed a space yacht to fit uh, to fit into the fairing of the Falcon Nine Heavy, like a space cruise with space condos. Is this a one-way trip for the in-laws to the sun? <laughs> <laughs> the point is, is if you've got a sufficiently good sort of uh, life support system, there's no reason why you couldn't do that. The, the problem is being able to get that life support system working sufficiently well. And I, I think this is the challenge that SpaceX will have him going to Mars, although I'm sure they've probably worked all this out by now. 
That's exactly like Elon Musk, Richard, is to work it all out before he makes a statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, th the thing is, a friend of mine who's uh, into space architecture, Professor Rachel Armstrong, she made the comment several years ago that the biggest issue you'll have is if you send people and you don't have that life support system properly worked out beforehand, the next people who get to Mars are going to end up finding the most expensive compost heap in the solar system. <laughs> it's a very, very uh, real point. It needs to be thought out well in advance. And it's something I'm thinking of with my retirement asteroids as well. You know, you know, obviously the, the key has to be the, uh, the life support system, get that cracked first, because the rest of it is, it's not easy, but it's, it's in many respects a lot easier. I'm happy to announce that I read in the news, and this goes back to 3D printing, they have figured out how to print a 3D print a steak. And so you could create with the protein and fat, the perfect Wagyu steak with beautiful marbling, 3D printed, no, no fuss, no muss. And so I declare survivability in space solved. See, I, I live really close to the Kennedy Space Center, and I was really sure that astronauts only eat ice cream. Well, that's now all they, they can have steak. Not ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> Now, Richard, we're we're actually getting close to the end of our time, and you've been no, incredibly no, no, generous no. with your time. But <laughs> I do have another question. I do. Clint, I've got one like, more question. Just be like Joe Rogan and let it run for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Great. Everyone loves Joe Rogan these days. I heard. Well, it seems to be fifty-fifty, uh, doesn't it? It, 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 it does. <laughs> You know, one of the things, Richard, I've wanted to make sure that we made time for on the episode today is that there are very few space enthusiasts and advocates for the industry that I've met that are more enthusiastic than you about getting people into the space industry. And you have great insights. We've talked before, but a lot of the people that listen to this, this podcast may not actually be working in the space industry today, and they would love to find their way into what we do in the space industry. If someone were looking to move into the space industry today, what are some ways that they could become a part of it? Because not everyone has a physics degree. Not everyone has a PhD in, in engineering. How would they get into this industry if they don't come from that background? I'll give you a story on how I got into launch because I didn't get into launch because of my physics degrees. I got into launch because I was playing around with small rockets. And I know that this is something that has happened with quite a few of the launch companies, that they have hired people with a background in building smaller rockets, because that gets them the experience rapidly, even on a small scale. It, it, you're not necessarily learning about how to build or how to conduct launch operations with liquid oxygen or kerosene, but you're learning how the whole thing works. I'd gone to a space conference in a personal capacity, uh, you know, paid for myself and everything. Couldn't get into anything relating to launch in the UK. It was a bit of a dirty word back in the 2000s. I got talking to someone who uh, was working at a company called Reaction Engines. And we were talking about rocket motors and, and testing. And he made a comment about, oh, of course, the thing is, you can't throttle a hybrid rocket motor. And I said, yeah, you can. We've done it. And he said, oh, well, yeah, maybe a little bit. And I said, no, we've gone down to 10%. Um, it, it was a very, very poor thrust, but, but we got it. He said, "Oh, really? Have you got any more on that?" And I said, "Yeah, it's, uh, we've got the rocket in the in the rucksack. Got a rocket right in my backpack." <laughs> yeah, so took this rocket uh, rocket motor out, this hybrid rocket motor, and showed him. And he said, "My God!" And then uh, my colleague who was with me had something else, and I, I I said, "I said, and of course, there's the gyro stabilized gimbaled rocket that hoffers." And this guy said, "Really?" You've got something that does that. And my friend said, oh, yeah, and takes out a whiskey bottle, a cardboard, uh, the whiskey bottle containers. And um, inside that pulls out 
a rocket switches on a switch at the top, the gyro spins up, and then there's this gimbling mount underneath. And this uh, this guy was amazed. He said, "Wow!" And that works. And it was like, "Yeah, we've had it hovering. We've we've had it take off, hover just when the thrust tails off, translate sideways because it was so windy, so it was accidental, and then land." And he said, "Right, I think we need to talk further." And then got back to us later the same day at this space conference, and he said, "Can we have a a chat over a cup of tea or coffee?" And we, we went for a chat with him and the uh, the people who founded Reaction Engines, told them what we were doing uh, and what we'd been up to. And uh, the founder had actually uh, been keeping a watch on what was going on in the sort of areas that we were playing around with. And it was playing around with them because it was things like the Top Gear shuttle. And they said, would you like to test a rocket engine for us, a a hydrogen rocket engine for the air-breathing single-stage orbit space plane design they were working on. And you can imagine, we were, what, really? You want to ask us to test this? And they said, well, we can't pay you much. And we thought, what, you're going to pay us? You're going to pay us to test a rocket engine for you? Are you kidding? The key to this is whenever you go to a show, make sure you have a rocket. In your bag. Well, it helps. Absolutely, (laughs) it helps. And based on that, we ended up testing the first of their their air-breathing rocket engines down at an ex-nuclear bunker in Wiltshire, which is where we used to test. We knew someone called Big Dave who had this uh, nuclear bunker. (laughs) As many people do know a Big Dave with a a nuclear bunker. bunker. Absolutely. And and Big Dave used to let us go down and test our hybrid rocket motor, you see. And we'd, we'd time it for when the train to Salisbury went past because that way the locals wouldn't complain about the noise. So you wait for the train to go past and then you light the rocket motor. I don't know. A big Dave with the with that type of bunker, that's someone you don't mess with anyway. It's a- Yeah, <laughs> and, and it, it was on three levels. It, it was an old bunker designed to take a couple of hundred people. So it was it was a huge affair. So anyway, we, we got testing this, this rocket engine and it went from there. And that is how I got into the launch industry or got into it in in a really professional manner. My point there is I did that from showing an interest, just showing a love and actually building things. And that makes a huge difference. If you, whatever you're doing, you don't have to have the right degrees, the right qualifications, but if you enjoy building, tinkering, playing with things and building your own rockets or build or launching your own rockets using uh, commercial rocket motors or building electronics because you you fancy building something that you could put on the surface of another planet or a moon then that's the type of real interest that's going to grab someone who's looking for someone with the skills who the maker hacker ethos so to speak so my point is you don't need to have that formal background necessarily that can be taught you can teach people how to do the right thing yes if you're building a large uh, launch vehicle having that formal background is incredibly useful but it doesn't stop you getting into the industry there are so many areas that space is actually going to need people working in and that's not just on the technical side too we need people in who are working on the legal side the insurance side on the investment side as I'm proof of now, on the marketing side, there are opportunities for everyone. And what I would say is just never, ever give up. Regardless, if you think you don't have a place in the space industry, ignore everyone and keep going for it. Don't give up. You can be in the space industry, regardless of your background. Really well said. And if all else fails, they're going to need shovels on the moon and Mars. So don't worry about that. No, absolutely. (laughs) Richard, it's been great having you on Space in 60. Tell all your friends, all your family, you're on the show. This has been exciting. And I knew it would be when we invited you that it would be an amazing show. 
Oh, but we've only scratched the surface. Can we keep going <laughs> another couple of hours? We're going to have to do an entire season for Richard. So long as we end up on Top Gear. Yes. Well, Richard, it's been great. Thank you for coming. You're always welcome back. And we will see you the next time you burn the house down. Thank you very much, Glenn. It is an absolute pleasure. It really has. I'll come back and chat to you anytime on anything to do with space. Great. We'll see you next time, Richard. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thanks. Cheers, Clint. So that was another great interview, but um, he only did say goodbye to Clint. Andrew, I'm not sure how you feel about this. Well, he burned the house down, according to Clint. I think he burned the planet down. So maybe it's just Clint that's left. Yeah, I'm, that I'm okay true. with it. I'm okay with it. I thought it was entirely appropriate. <laughs> that was a really good good time. That was fantastic. And and now I'm going to have to, you know, during lunch, go watch uh, a little bit of Top Gear here just to have a good chuckle. Yeah, I'm going to have to get that episode from you again because I did not make a note while YouTube. I was here. But it's, uh... YouTube. <laughs> yeah, I, I will definitely be watching that episode today. Yeah, Richard's such a fun guy. I I had such a good time today. And, you know, I think the stories that Richard has, Richard was space before space was cool. I mean, the fact that he's been launching rockets carries an engine in his backpack. (laughs) I thought I was a space enthusiast, but that's a whole new level. Well, I I like the the scotch bottle tube story because you just don't. (laughs) You don't mess around with scotch, so clearly that was gyrostale. See, that, that's where we'll have it. Clint will pull the rocket out. Andrew will pull a box, a scotch box out, but then he'll pull the scotch out um, yeah. and have it there. So, I mean, there's there's the dynamic we have going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and I really, like, it was just a joke about the duct tape um, with the rocket, but wow, they really duct tape on a rocket. I'm, I'm thinking that's the next test. There's duct tape for everything. Yep, duct tape for everything. Well, that was that was great. Thank you all for listening to to this episode of Space in 60. And like I said to Richard, tell your mom, tell your friends, tell your brothers and your sisters to listen to Space in 60, and we'd love to have you. We've actually passed some really big milestones. We're at several thousand uh, listeners now. At most, I was hoping that my mom, your mom, Chad's mom. There's a lot of moms. A lot of moms. At least there are moms that are listening. But it's actually <laughs> turned into network. a thing. Yeah, it's actually turned into a thing, and we have quite the, quite the following. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of Space in 60. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks. Space in 60.